Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Welcome back. Can you believe that we're already on episode 18? I'm thoroughly surprised how much everyone seems to be enjoying this. I write out these episodes, and yet it feels like when I'm recording these, it is every effort just to get the words out. I stumble about and second-guess myself, but throughout it all, you keep coming back, which keeps me motivated. I do have a listener from South Africa. Hello there. I am saddened to hear about the floods that have affected your parts. I'm not sure exactly where you are, but I hope you and your family are doing well. Also, an article ran across my feed last week that made me super excited. I've linked it in my episode description, and I would love to know your thoughts. The title reads, Ancient Nabean Stone Holds Key to Future Quantum Computers. This stone is deep red and crystal-like in appearance, and it is mined on the Atlantic coast of Southwest Africa. The chemical compound is C2O, which is two parts copper and one part oxygen. Within the article, it states, quote, The research used a naturally mined copperous oxide, Cu2O, gemstone from Nabia to produce Rydberg polarations, the largest hybrid particles of light and matter ever created, end quote. Now I know that that has nothing to do with Atlantis, so to say, but could this be the infamous mountain copper or orichalcum? I did a quick look on Google Maps and it does appear to have some elevations, but I'm not sure if those would be considered mountains. Either way, it's possible that this stone could be found in Northwest Africa too. Could it be that orichalcum was not really a metal, but a gemstone? Nothing really suggests that it was a metal other than it was being called mountain copper. And then perhaps it is alluded to when talking about those walls on the city, one being of brass, one being of tin, and the third being of orichalcum. But it only says that it flashed with the red light of orichalcum. We just assume that it's metal. Could it be a gemstone? Anyway, for this episode, I will continue on with Heracles, and I want to talk about the more famous one. I will surprise you with a Hercules you didn't know, as well as making connections with our other figures throughout ancient cultures. For this episode, I will be using the help from the following authors. Diodorus, a classical Greek historian, set out to create an encyclopedia of history, created 40 works, and only 15 of those survived. He died after 120 BCE. Apollonius of Rhodes was an ancient Greek author, best known for the work of Argonautica, an epic poem about Jason and the Argonauts and their quest for the Golden Fleece. He was alive during the first half of the 3rd century BCE. Finally, Apollodorus of Athens was a classical Greek scholar, historian, and grammatician. He worked at the Library of Alexandria, and he was a grammatarian to Acrysticus of Semiothraki, who was a scholar of Homer. He died roughly around 120 BC. I'll also be referencing several other smaller authors, such as Posenesis, Sudeus, and Strabo. Two episodes back, I told you about Perseus and his quest for Medusa's head, after which, Perseus found a beautiful naked Andromeda tied to a rock. 
in what is believed to be modern-day Tel Aviv, Israel. I have a listener in those parts, and I just want to say hello. Maybe if you're in the area, I would love to see some pictures of that rock. I'm drawing you an Earhart. Thank you. Anyway, Perseus and Andromeda had a son named Electrion. Electrion became king of Mycenae and married Anaxo, the daughter of his brother Alcaeus. Together, they had one daughter named Alcamene and many sons. Alcamene ended up marrying Amphitryon, who was a Thebian general, which usually these stories, if it didn't come from Athens, they usually supposedly came from Thebes. So Alcamene ended up marrying Amphitryon, who was a Thebian general and was originally from Tyrians, the eastern part of the Peloponnese. Electrion accidentally killed his father-in-law, Electron. I know, their names sound so familiar. It's almost like the women always go for their fathers. Anyway, so he was driven out by Electrion's brother, Stenesis. He fled with Alcamene to Thebes, where he was cleansed of the blood guilt, or miasma, by Creon, the king of Thebes. So apparently kings can cure you of your blood debt, and they usually send you on impossible labors, or you can just choose to be exiled. There was no prisons and jails for these type of things back then. Anyway, Alcamene, who had been betrothed to Amphitryon by her father, refused to marry him until he had avenged the death of her brothers, all but one of whom had fallen in battle against the Taphians. It was on his return from this expedition that Electrion had been killed. On the night before Amphitryon arrived in Thebes, Zeus disguised himself as Amphitryon and came to Alcamene's bedroom. I have returned victorious, he said, and showed her some spoils of war. Then, her being so grateful, took him to her bed, and Zeus enjoyed the night so much that he extended it three times its normal length. When the real Amphitryon returned to Thebes, he came home, I've returned glorious, and then married Alcamene, who was notably confused because, like, didn't he just show up the day before saying it? So maybe she thought he had early Alzheimer's, so she just patted him on the head and just accepted that he came back victorious twice. Well, they went to bed together, and Alcamene became pregnant. She ended up giving birth to twins. Their names were Ephistocles and Alcides, meaning the line of Alcades, presumably after Alcamene's father. In ancient Greek mythology, how this works would be that one of those twins would be the son of Zeus, and the other one would be the son of Amphitryon, the king. But we won't know which one is which until much later. This does happen in real life, by the way. There are cases of women who have given birth to twins by two different fathers. Anyway, Thebes, where this is located at, is located about 50 kilometers or 31 miles northwest of Athens. And about 100 kilometers or 62 miles southeast of Lamia. And Lamia is a great story too. And maybe I'll touch up on it at some point. But it was named after another one of Zeus's lovers that Hera cursed to become a snake and her eyes had to remain open all the time. She could never close them. Anyway, Alcamene became suspicious that it was actually Zeus that had tricked her. 
and she became fearful of Hera's wrath. Obviously, remember what happened to Io, and don't get me started with Lamia, who was cursed with insomnia and lost her children and became a half-snake monster and could take out her eyeballs on demand because she had an affair with Zeus. So naturally, Alcamene tried to make it right to Hera by leaving baby Alcidides outside to exposure. And again, leaving your child to die by exposure is not really killing them in the ancient times because it's now in the gods' hands. And it could be the gods that decide if whether or not that baby dies. And this is very common in a lot of ancient Greek mythology. They were just leaving babies all the time, being suckled by she-goats and she-wolves. So leaving your children out does not incur miasma. Well, as baby Alcides was laying outside to be exposed to the heat, the cold, the wind, the animals, it just so happened that Athena ran across this baby and took him to Mount Olympus. Apparently, Alcides was really hungry, and so Athena gave the baby to Hera. And Hera didn't recognize him, and she felt sorry for him, so she began to breastfeed him. However, baby Alcides sucked so hard that Hera pushed him off of her breasts, causing the milk to squirt all out and creating a splash of milk forever in our galaxy, lending the name to the Milky Way. Now with the divine milk, Alcides had acquired supernatural powers from Hera. Alcides was taken back to Alcamene and Amphimtrion and was put back into the crib. One night, while the children were sleeping, roughly about eight months old, two snakes came to attack the children. Iphicles started crying out of fear. And when their parents came to check on them, Alcides, the son of Zeus, held both snakes by their necks, and in each hand, he strangled them. Apparently, this is how Amphiptyon learned which child was his true son and not Zeus's child. Alcides changes his name later in hopes of keeping the favor of Hera. This doesn't seem to work and only seems to upset her more. Alcides, or Heracles, meaning glory fame of Hera, or Hera's glory, which is why it's called Hera Khalees is from Hera, and Khalees would be for the glory of. So we're looking at the rough translation of Hera's glory. And he remained cursed for all of his mortal life until the end, when Hera finally accepted him and he took his place amongst the gods in Olympus. The Spartans themselves, they believe that their two royal lineages were descendants from twin brothers, Eurystathenes and Procleus, who themselves were descended from Alcides. There is little to no evidence to actually back up this heroic genealogy, though it would be fair to say that most classical era Greeks believed it. Alcides, or Heracles, his height is reported to be about four cubits, or approximately six foot two in modern day standards. Alcides was a master wrestler taught by Autolochus, who some believe to be the father of Odysseus. He was also a master swordsman taught by Castor and a master archer taught by Eurytus. Alcides becomes cursed by Hera, causing him to fall into madness later on in his life. 
He killed his wife and children while under this delirium. That was Magra, and I want to say he had five kids. Remember, killing family members is a big no-no, so Alcides was sent to a neighboring kingdom to seek purification from his deeds. Eurystheus is also a descendant of Zeus, but he was born prematurely because Hera convinced the goddess of childbirth to make his mom go into labor early so that Alcides would not gain the throne. Alcides went to Eurystheus for purification. Eurystheus sent Alcides to perform his ten labors. And these ten labors, once completed, would purify him so he would not incur eternal punishment after he died. Eventually, two of those labors didn't count as he received help from his nephew and one of the labors he asked for compensation. So now this is where things get a bit more confusing. Those infamous Pillars of Heracles. But wait a minute, didn't I just tell you last week about Melkart Hercules and weren't the pillars established at Cadiz, Spain? Well, I did. Which is why I have to ask myself, why did Alcides go to Libya to establish his own pillars? Remember this quote from Diodorus? In the end, both the Gorgons and the race of Amazons were entirely destroyed by Hercules. When he visited the regions to the west and he set up his pillars in Libya, he felt that it would be in ill accord with his resolve to be the benefactor of the whole race of mankind if he should suffer any nations to be under the rule of women. This almost seems to me that there could be another set of pillars. Alcides needed to make the pillars like his named predecessor. Melkart pillars in Cadiz, Spain, and then many generations later, Alcides, holding the name Heracles, went to set up his own pillars and a temple to be worshipped like the gods. Then there is this bit by Diodorus that says, Atlas, begat by her, Hesperus, seven daughters, who were named after their father, Atlantides, and after their mother, Hesperides. And since these Atlantides excelled in beauty and chastity, Bolsiris, the king of the Egyptians, the account says, was seized with desire to get the maidens into his power. And consequently, he dispatched pirates by sea with orders to seize the girls and deliver them into his hands. Heracles came across Bolsiris in Egypt and slew him. Meanwhile, the pirates had seized the girls while they were playing in a certain garden and carried them off. And fleeing swiftly to their ships, he sailed away with them. Heracles came upon the pirates as they were taking their meal on a certain strand, and learning from the maidens what had taken place, he slew the pirates to a single man and brought the girls back to Atlas, their father. And in return, Atlas was so grateful for Heracles for his kindly deed that he not only gladly gave him such assistance as his labor called for, which by the way was the apples from the Garden of the Hesperides. We also have the small problem of when Heracles went to Titan Atlas for one of his labors to retrieve the golden apples of the Hesperides. Heracles held the world on his shoulders for Atlas while Atlas went and picked the apples. However, if we're talking about Alcides Heracles, wouldn't Atlas already be a mountain because Perseus was his grandfather and Perseus changed Atlas into a mountain? I have a feeling that there's another Heracles that came after Melkor and before Alcides. 
There's also a much older Heracles that goes with Jason as one of the Argonauts. When Jason went to Lake Tritonus, here's a quote from Apollonius of Rhodes. They, the Argonauts, found the sacred plot till the day before the serpent Laden, a son of the Libyan soil, had kept watch over the golden apples in the Garden of Atlas. While close at hand and busy at their tasks, the Hesperides sang their lovely song. But now the snake struck down by Heracles, but lay by the trunk of the apple tree. Not only the tip of his tail still twitching, from the head down his dark spine showed no sign of life. His blood had been poisoned by the arrows steeped in the gall of the Hydralernian, and flies perished in the festering wound. Finally, we come full circle with this quote from Apollodorus of Athens. Now Prometheus had told Hercules not to go himself after the apples but to send Atlas, first relieving him of the burden of the sphere, so that when he has come to Atlas in the land of the Hyperboreans, he took the advice and relieved Atlas. But when Atlas received three apples from the Hesperides, he came to Hercules, and not wishing to support the sphere, he said that he would himself carry the apples to Eurystheus and bade Hercules to hold up the sky in his stead. Hercules promised to do so, but succeeded by craft by putting it on Atlas instead. For at the advice of Prometheus, he begged Atlas to hold the sky till he should put on a pad on his head. When Atlas heard that, he laid the apples down on the ground and took the sphere from Hercules. And so Hercules picked up the apples and departed. But some say that he did not get them from Atlas, but that he plucked the apples himself after killing the guardian snake. And having brought the apples, he gave them to Eurystheus. So now I'm curious. How do you make sense of the Battle of the Heracleses? Do you remember a few episodes back when I was talking to you about the Olympics and the Olympic Stadium? I told you about Pelops and Dactyls, both of them potentially being the founder of the Olympic Games. Dactyls and his brothers ended up doing a race, Dactyls won, and he was crowned with the olive wreath. Well, let's talk about Dactyls a little bit more. According to Diodorus, Strabo, Panassus, and Sudeus, Dactyls also had the title of Heracles. Let's hear it from them. And Diodorus says, And the writers tell us that one of them, the Dactyls, was named Heracles. And excelling as he did in fame, he established the Olympic Games. And that the men of later period thought, because the name was the same, that it was the son of Alcamene, who had found the institution of the Olympic Games. As evidence of this, they tell us, are found in the fact that many women, even to this day, take their incantations from the god and make amulets in his name, on the grounds that he was a wizard and practiced the arts of initiatory rites. But they add that these things were indeed very far removed from the habits of Hercules, who was born of Alcamene. Here's Strabo's approach on dactyls as being Hercules. What is more, the Olympian Games were an invention of theirs, the Dactyls, and it was they who celebrated the first Olympiads. For one should disregard the ancient stories both of the founding of the temple and the establishment of the games, some alleging 
that it was Heracles, one of the dactyls, who was the originator of both, and others, that it was Heracles, the son of Alcamene, and Zeus, who was the first to contend in the games and win the victory. For such stories are told in many ways, and not much faith is to be put in them. Posnasus says, As for the Olympic Games, the most learned antiquitarians of Elias say that Kronos was the first king of heaven, and that in his honor a temple was built in Olympia by a man of that age who renamed the Golden Race. When Zeus was born, Rhea entrusted the guardianship of her son, the Dactoil of Ida, who are the same as those called by the Curates. They came from Cretan Ida, Heracles, Poonasus, Epimedes, Iasus, and Idas. Hercules, being the eldest, matched his brothers as a game in a running race and crowned the winner with a branch of wild olive, of which they had a copious supply that they slept on heaps of its leaves while still green. It is said to have been introduced to the Greece by Heracles from the land of the Hyperboreans, men living beyond the home of the Boreas, or the North Winds. Hercules of Ida, therefore, has the reputation of being the first to have had, on occasion, I mentioned the games, to have called them Olympics. So he established the custom of holding them every fifth year, because he and his brothers were five in number. Now some say that Zeus wrestled here with Kronos himself for the throne, while others say that he held the games in honor of his victory over Kronos. The record of victors include Apollon, who outran Hermes and beat Ares at boxing. Later on, there came from Crete, Clymenos, the son of Cadres. About 50 years after the flood came upon the Greeks in the time of Ducleon. He was descended from Hercules of Ida. He held the games at Olympia and set up an altar in honor of Hercules, his ancestor, and the other Curates, giving to Hercules the surname of Peristasis, or assistant. In Panasus' description of Greece, he says, The altar of the Olympic Zeus at Olympia, some say it was built by Heracles Ideosus, Idean Hercules. Panasus also says that the Olympic Games are traced back to a time earlier than the human race. The story being that Kronos and Zeus wrestled here and that the Curates, i.e. the Dactoi, or Dactyls, were the first to race at Olympia. Sidious says that this man is another Hercules, applied to those accomplishing something by force. Something proverbial is said about Theseus or about the Hercules who was the son of the Dactoi or Idean Dactyls or about the son of Alcamene because of the older ones of his name. Depictions of Hercules in art usually have the same characteristics. He is depicted as tall and strong and with the lion's pelt for clothing and a club as a weapon. Other common characters attributed with the name Heracles would be the Roman Hercules, Samson from the Book of Judges and the Bible, and Gilgamesh from Mesopotamian texts.
Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Ancient Carthage had an entry canal for boats that approached a circular walled harbor. Around 200 BCE, another rectangular harbor was built. Carthage's main port contained two linked harbors with a common entrance from the sea. Its main port was 21.3 meters wide or 0.13 stadia, which could be closed with iron chains. The circular harbor was for storing the city's massive navy of 220 warships. The rectangular harbor was for mercantile trade. There was a central island that was located within the circular harbor, which rose to a considerable height, allowing for Carthaginian commanders to observe what was going on out in sea, while approaching ships had no clear view of what lay within the city. Carthage was a city of glittering palaces and luxury houses, lived in by the rich merchant classes. 